I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the 124th Psalm, Psalm 124. Uh, the book of Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible. I did not write the page number down, so when somebody gets there in your pew Bible, if that's what you're using, if you could call it out and let the rest of us know, for any who might need help navigating their way there. Um, Psalm 124, and I'll wait for that page number. Sorry? 6 612? Thank you. Page 612. Oops. There we go. This is part of the Song of Ascents, the psalms that would be sung coming back to Jerusalem for uh, festival time. And it's written by David. And so David sings. If it had not been the Lord, if it had not been Yahweh who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us, and the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be Yahweh, who has not given us His prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sorry, you guys were enjoying that so much. Threw me off. (laughs) God be praised. I love it. That's that's how you know a psalm is good. You're all like ready to charge the hill, and we haven't even started the sermon yet. So we're still in our, uh, returning to our sermon on the Psalms this morning, and uh, a, a series that I mean to finish up as we uh, get closer and closer to the summer, I believe, I'm off the top of my head here, but I believe I started it last May, and so I wanted to spend about a year here not covering all 150 Psalms, but kind of, um, well, I don't know what else to say, covering the ones I thought would be most beneficial for our body to hear, and in many cases, most beneficial for us as a body to learn how to sing. And so, um, and so that's why we're here. And we are arriving at Psalm 124. This one has to be one of my favorites. And I'm going to remind you yet again, in case anyone's forgotten, why we've been here in the Psalms. And I'm going to use Psalm 124 to do it. By way of reminder, the Psalms teach you at least two things, how to talk and how to sing, okay? often being the same thing, because the way you sing is actually the way you talk, whether or not you realize it. I can tell you in the, I mean, having just had a, uh, had a memorial service for a dearly departed saint, in times of grief, when you seek to comfort each other, you know what comes out of you very often? Your songs, what you've been singing, what you've been singing in church, maybe what you've grown up singing, right? Uh, and it's, uh, I, m- I remember just the other day, someone was telling me about some, some trouble they'd been, they'd been suffering through, some difficulty they'd encountered, and then they took a deep breath and they said, oh, through many dangers, toils, and snares. Right? Now, they, they didn't need to do the rest of the verse. I, I have already come, and, and grace has brought me safe, and so on, right? They didn't need to, because sort of the rest of it was implied. Just those first few words implied the rest. That's what was encouraging them. And so the Psalms are meant to teach you how to sing and how to talk. 
Look at verse 1. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now talk this way. Let Israel now say. Let Israel now sing this way. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side. So trouble, trial, and disaster, difficulty, hardship, and grief have an impact on us in a lot of different ways, actually. But one of the ways is that it tends to tie up our tongue. I mean, have you ever been sitting next to someone who is really going through some hard suffering and struggled with what to say? I have. That, they, they, that doesn't get sort of worked out of you in seminary. It is still really hard to know what to say in hard times. If you've ever been a, a, to a funeral or to a memorial service and you really wanted to have something to say, something really good and, and, and strengthening and encouraging to someone that was hurting, something to comfort them, but where are the words? Or have you ever been hurting yourself and looking for words to comfort your own heart and they won't come? Trouble tends to tie up our tongue. It has been observed that Job's friends in the book of Job were absolutely brilliant in the first part of the story when they didn't say anything. They were brilliant until they opened their mouths and gave really bad counsel. And so all of us, when we're going through trouble, or when we see those who we love going through trouble, we want to know how to talk. We want to know what to say. And this psalm, which is a psalm about trouble, starts out by saying, Attention, Israel. Attention, people of God. Talk like this. Now say this. Sing like this. Let Israel now say these words. And it teaches us what? To think of God as for us. Verse 2. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us. Okay? If it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Now that, at first reading, it almost sounds arrogant. Right? I mean, the Lord is on our side. Like, I mean, there's, a, there's running jokes about, you know, you, you ask the Lord to, to, to pray for your, for your sports team, right? And, and to be on their side. And that, you can kind of feel like the tawdry sort of silliness of that. Uh, to speak of the Lord is on our side sounds arrogant. Let me tell you, that is nothing more or less than the gospel. That God is for you, not against you. That's the gospel. That God is for you, not against you. In fact, Martin Luther said that that's the, those are the two hardest words to believe about the gospel. For me. That it's for me. It's really easy, and I indict myself and my fellow preachers here, it is easy to talk about the gospel. It's easy even to preach the gospel. The hardest part is believing that it's for you. The, and, and believing that God is not in heaven scheming our destruction, but rather our sanctification, making us more like His Son. That He uses everything, and everything means everything, working all things together for His glory and for our good. But the reality is that when trouble comes, your flesh, your heart, naturally by itself, wants to assume God is against you. That God is against you. Sometimes it's why people even leave the church. They encounter some kind of hardship or hypocrisy or sin. And they say, God is not here. 
Or I, I, I needed God to come through for me in this particular way. I needed this healing to happen. I needed this relief to come. I needed this money to come through and it didn't. And they say, God is not on my side, you see. Instead, this psalm teaches us to say, let Israel now say, we're, we're provoked and prodded and pushed to talk this way because in the midst of trouble, we don't talk this way. He is for us. He means to deliver us. He is our help and our shield and so on. We are afraid to talk this way and maybe even afraid to sing this way because it sounds arrogant. And suppose it, it, I mean, it could be used arrogantly. You could put God's name on a, on a cause or a, 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 a political action or a political party even, Right? And, then say, and then say the Lord is on our side. And then we are Christians who believe the third commandment is, is real. That when God says, do not take my name in vain, he means it. And so we do have to exercise caution here. But, but on the other hand, let me offer you this. That, that, that sensitivity in you that doesn't want to talk this way, okay, it's, it's here. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side. So don't try to be more spiritual than God when God talks this way. Okay? Psalms teach us how to talk, and this is one of them. Next, Psalms teach us how God writes stories, including yours. Most of the Psalm is telling stories using metaphors. Okay? These, um, you know, let's, let's, let's read through it now. Okay, uh, verse three, right? If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when, when people, when our enemies rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive, right? Their anger was kindled against us. Floods would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Over us would have gone the raging waters, okay? So God's people overwhelmed on all sides, right? Taken out by a flood, obviously, you know, if you, if, you know, if you know Genesis, one of the strongest images of judgment in the Bible is a flood. But then you have this word of blessing that comes in verse 6. Blessed be the Lord and a new metaphor who has not given us as prey to their teeth. Well, now I'm like a, a, an animal running from a bigger animal. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. I don't, I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to see a bird break out of a cage or a trap okay but when the cage opens or when the trap opens don't blink right you'll miss it just boom like a shot he's gone right and so and so it is we we have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers and what does a bird do after it breaks out of the cage it flies away and it sings yes <laughs> right and so it is psalm 24 inviting israel to sing of god's goodness to them and so 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 what are they what what's the suffering here let's look at it very i mean if you if you've got your bible open in front of you verses three through seven they're they're targets of anger and what are the what are the threats threatened threatening to be swallowed up drenched and drowned by the floodwaters Threatened by sharp teeth, stuck in a trap, okay? All these pictures. And then you have verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Okay. Which means, I mean, just mathematically, okay? 
verses 3 through 7, the, the largest part of the psalm, in other words, most of what you're singing about are the troubles, right? The troubles take up most of the ink in the psalm. Most of the psalm is about the troubles, and that reflects the way we talk to ourselves, doesn't it? When you are walking through trouble, trouble is the biggest thing on your radar, okay? It's like a giant taking up all of your vision. It, it's, it's always on your mind and probably always in your speech. Someone asks, how are you doing? Oh, oh all the trouble comes out, right? Because that, it's, it's so big in my vision. That's what I'm struggling with right now. That's why I'm hurting. When you are hurting, the pain is the loudest thing screaming in your head, whether it's physical or emotional pain. When you are discouraged or sad, your sadness tends to take up a lot of your mental energy and you don't have much left. What can we learn from this? And what can we learn from the fact that most of the psalm stacks the troubles before you get to verse 8? I think what we can learn from this in one sentence, and maybe some of you just need to write this down in your bulletin or somewhere else today. God loves to write cliffhangers. God writes really good cliffhangers. He does. He writes really good cliffhangers. Okay? I mean, think of uh, 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 the, the, the Exodus, right? You've got the people of God standing at the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army is coming, okay? and they're terrified, and then God splits the sea into right? walls on each side. They walk through, and then the waters come down on Pharaoh's army, and then they sing a, a song that is really not that all that unlike Psalm 124. Uh, he's, he's thrown horse and rider into the sea and, and so on. Well, why didn't God wipe out Pharaoh's army when they were three hours out? I don't know. God likes to write cliffhangers. Right? Why didn't God send the ram to Abraham and Isaac when they're going up the mountain an hour before they got to the top? I, well, God likes to write cliffhangers. He likes to wait until the knife is right here, for heaven's sake. I'll say more about that in a moment. Psalms also, this is my next point, Psalms root our hope in the God who made all things. So they teach us how to talk and how to sing. That's where we've been so far. Pardon me, I forget my own headings. Uh, they teach us, teaches us how God writes stories, namely that he writes cliffhangers. And they, they root our hope in the God who made all things. The last verse is the verse of deliverance, right? Our help is in the name of Yahweh. Um, I've also read it uh, and, and seen it in... Uh, Psalm paraphrases is Jehovah. Our help is in Jehovah who made heaven and earth. Our help is in the name. Now, let me talk to you about that for just a second. Because some of you, I just threw for a loop when I said Jehovah. And so I want to talk about the name for a second. There have been among Christians, like real Christians of good faith, brothers and sisters, strong debates about the proper pronunciation of God's name. I think those debates are mostly silly. Okay? Because throughout the Scripture, God's name actually appears in different ways. Sometimes it's even abbreviated, right? So even if you want to say God's name is Yahweh, a lot of times in the Psalms, it's just Yah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's abbreviated, okay? And other times, other times Israel gets the name right, but the obedience wrong, okay? And they don't seem to get partial credit for that, by the way. <laughs> As you might know, the divine name in the Old Testament is four Hebrew letters, and it means I am. 
we often pronounce it Yahweh, which even that pronunciation is something of an approximation. The pronunciation Yahweh is our best guess. I had a Hebrew professor at RTS who was very insistent that it's Yahweh. And he said, that's how Moses pronounced it. Now, I don't know if he was there at the burning bush. He didn't seem that old to me. I had a Hebrew professor at Liberty University who was very insistent that it's pronounced uh, Yavah with a V, which when he said it quickly sounded like an F, Yavah. And I once met someone who was convinced that we should only use Yah, the first syllable, and not go any further than that. And of course, you've got those in the school of thought that say that the Jewish people didn't even pronounce the name at all, right? Didn't even pronounce the name at all, which is not exactly true. It is true that modern Judaism does not pronounce the name at all, but there's zero evidence that ancient Judaism refused to pronounce it. In all likelihood, the sensitivity around the pronunciation was a much later development, well after the time of Jesus, I would say. The moment at the burning bush makes no sense if they weren't allowed to pronounce it. God gives the name to Moses, right? I am that I am. Tell them, Moses, that I am has sent me to you, but don't say my name. Okay? And that's not even mentioning Jehovah, which is something of an anglicized attempt to pronounce the same name with Adonai kind of on board as well. Some people get really hung up about the name Jehovah. I do not. I think it's fine. We all know the reference point is the God of Israel. Now, I'm not saying it's all relative or that, there's, uh, or that you shouldn't care about pronunciation. I, I am saying there's nothing inherently wrong with Jehovah or Yahweh as names. They are attempts at approximations. That's what all of them are. So when David says, our help is in the name of the Lord, verse 8. Could you put that verse back up? Our help is in the name of the Lord. He does not mean that God's name is a magic word, that if you speak it with the correct pronunciation, will function like a mystical password to unlock what you want. We already have a name for that behavior. We call it witchcraft. Okay? The fact is, nobody is entirely sure how this name was pronounced. David's point is that our help is in this God and no other. Okay? This God has named himself for us. We might stumble with pronunciation, but our God is not just sort of an idea of the divine or a force that's active in the world. When David says our help is in the name of our God, he's not saying the correctly pronounced word is our private magic juju. A God with a name is a God with a history. A history that includes God giving that name to His people. So here's, here's what I'm trying to say. Maybe it's not clear. If, if you go to introduce yourself to someone, right, and you say, hi, I'm John, or whatever, what's your name? And in response, the other person says, my name is none of your concern. I reckon you're going to have a hard time getting to know that person, <laughs> to say the least. I reckon you're going to have a hard time building a relationship with them. They won't even let themselves be named by you. You see? David could have just said, our hope is in a vague notion of a higher power. 
Okay, so what? But our help, our, our hope is in our God who has a name. A specific almighty God who has determined that he will relate to us. Because he gave us his name. So now we know him and he knows us. We worship a named God. A God who named himself that he might be known by us. This is made even more spectacular with the coming of Jesus, right? <laughs> which is, again, which is another, a name given to us of the Son of God. And only, listen, only a, sinful, only a bunch of sinful human beings could turn all that glory into a debate about pronunciation. So let's return to the verse. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Well, that's interesting. Now, the language there might surprise you. It kind of surprised me. Let me tell you why. I was expecting to read, our help is in the name of the Lord who crushes his enemies. Why did you expect to read that? Well, that's what, kind of what the psalm's about, right? right? These angry people were against us and so on. Right? But, but the Lord. And so I was expecting like, but the Lord, the mighty warrior who, who crushes his enemies. And that's there in other places in the Psalms. That's why I was expecting it. Our help is in the name of the Lord who breaks all our chains. That would work. I mean, we just talked about Fowler's snare and so on. That would have fit well too, I think. But I wasn't writing the Psalm. David was. But instead, it's our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Why does that matter? Well, first of all, again, remember verses 3 through, uh, three through 7. They all have to do with very earthy things, right? So, if, I mean, if you go back and look swallowed us up when their anger was kindled against us. The flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. And we're like a bird stuck in the trap. These are all very very earthy, creational things. But also, David understands that our doctrine of creation is actually connected and is inseparable from our hope. From our hope. Here's what I mean, okay? So, we're at the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army behind us. Right? Water in front of us. We're trapped. And our only hope is in Jehovah, in, in, in Yahweh, in our God. Why? Well, <laughs> He's the God who made us and them Egyptians behind us. The flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Over us would have gone the waters. But God saved us. Why? Well, He's the one that made the water. He can do with it whatever He wants. And so you begin to see that for David, the matter of who created the heavens and the earth is really important. If, if, for example, we evolved from protoplasm and everything around us is simply molecules crashing into other molecules, we have no reason to hope. But if our help is in the name of the Lord, who made everything, heavens and earth, everything we can see, everything we cannot see, then that means we should not be afraid. So what is the goal or purpose of this psalm? I will offer to you that it probably has more than one, but at the very least it is meant to give us words to sing when hope is hard to find. To give us words to sing when hope is hard to find. Because if the trouble goes on for a while, and on, and on, and on, and on, then it gets really hard to hope. And it seems to me that our flesh is, is almost sort of hardwired to, to be so afraid of trouble that when it comes, we start, we start writing a story about how it's all going to go bad. 
It's all going to go bad. It's all going to be garbage. It's all going to burn up, whatever. What does Psalm 124 do? It gives us words to sing when hope is hard. Because, again, I'm looking around myself and all I'm seeing is oncoming floods. I'm looking around myself and all I see is I'm stuck. I'm, I'm trapped. Trapped in anxiety. Trapped in my fear and uncertainty. Trapped in a wobbly economy. Trapped in a really hard marriage. Trapped like a bird caught in a snare. And in our flesh, we would despair unless we know how to sing. Psalm 124 enables your soul to say, what does God do with floodwaters? He clears a path on dry ground and drowns Pharaoh's armies with them. What does God do with snares and traps? He breaks them. What does God do with hard marriages? He revives them. If we fight, fight for them. What does God do with prodigals? He brings them home. What does God do with troubles? He turns them into stories of His own faithfulness. And when we start singing like that, when trouble hits... I mean, it's almost like a catechism question and answer. You know, your, your trouble hits, and the catechism question is, what do I do with my trouble? And, and left to yourself in your flesh, what your heart's natural reaction, like, like when the doctor hits you with that hammer and, and your knee jerks forward, your natural reaction to trouble is going to be, woe is me, all hope is lost, this is not going to go well, this is not going to be good. What if your heart is tuned by things like Psalm 124 so that your heart shouts, when trouble hits, your heart shouts, my only help is in Jehovah's name. My only help is in the name of the Lord. My only help is in Jesus and the God who loves to set me free. So when we see the coming flood, we look around, we see the snares and traps. I'm not saying they're not real. We see them and we say, I know what those are. Those are the things that God loves to break and push me through and sustain me in and give me stories to tell the next generation about how to hope in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Because, yes, our God writes cliffhangers. He often delights to rescue his people in the nick of time when the waters are about here, right? Almost above our heads. When Egypt is almost on our heels. When Abraham's knife is almost come down on Isaac. When Goliath looks absolutely unapproachable. When the furnace is burning so hot, it kills the two guys who were supposed to throw me in. When Daniel has been tossed into the lion's den and sealed in there, and it seems absolutely hopeless. When all the demonic hordes seem to be riding through your kitchen window on a Friday afternoon in order to sow hopelessness on top of hopelessness. And as one... Uh, theologian observed, Daniel did not have the book of Daniel with him when he was in the lion's den. He didn't know how his story would end. He didn't have the book with him. All he had were the lions. <laughs> because our God writes cliffhangers. 
And is that not what the cross is, right? It's not what the, it's not what the, in, fact, in fact, no, the cross is not a cliffhanger. God did not rescue Jesus in the nick of time. But God the Father did not rescue God the Son in the nick of time. He raised Jesus up three days after the nick of time. How does that change our stories? It means that God raises the dead. God takes us to the brink and sometimes a little bit further so that we can understand that even if we go all the way through the disaster, He is still able to deliver. Why? Why? Because He's the one who made heaven and earth. So we trust in the one who raises the dead. I'm not saying, sing Psalm 124 and all of your stories will have the happy ending that you wrote for them. Sometimes God breaks things. Sometimes He breaks you. And when God breaks things, He does mean to show you His own wisdom while He puts them back together. Sometimes everything gets put back together in this life. Sometimes it gets put back together in glory. But the cross forever shows us that God does not write His stories of victory and deliverance in the way that we would imagine them, right? The cross is not what you or I would have imagined as a way for God to save the world. But when we follow after this crucified and risen God-man, we are following after the God who often redeems and rescues in precisely this way. In precisely this way. I'm going to close the sermon by telling you about a guy named John Dury. John Dury, which I'm going to brag, even Neil didn't know who this was, okay? <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. John Dury was a Scotsman and a Benedictine monk in the 1500s. But when he discovered the writings of a guy named John Knox, which if you don't know him, is a Scottish reformer with a most excellent beard, John Dury was converted after reading the work of John Knox, he joined the Reformation in Scotland and he became a minister. Uh, he became a minister in 1573 and was probably one of the first uh, Reformed and, and Presbyterian pastors in Scotland. So that meant he faced a great deal of persecution. He was imprisoned in Edinburgh Castle, no less. And eventually, for all of his uh, because he wouldn't stop, he was eventually exiled from the city, cut off from his congregation. So he waits for a time and then requests permission from the city authorities in Edinburgh to return. And surprisingly, it's granted. So in 1582, he returns to the city of Edinburgh, and when he's on the very outskirts of town, he's met by the authorities, including his former jailers. They weren't there to bring him back to, to jail. They were there just to make sure he understood that he was coming back to their city and that he ought to behave himself. Somebody else, though, met John Dury along with the authorities, namely several hundred of his closest friends, otherwise known as his congregation. <laughs> they were waiting on the edge of the city to escort him back into town. As they're making their way back into Edinburgh, more and more start joining the processional until several hundred 
become several thousand. And then someone started singing. Do you know what they sang? Psalm 124. Now Israel may say in that in truth, if the Lord had not our right maintained, if the Lord had not with us remained, when cruel men against us rose to strive, we surely would have been swallowed up alive. And the writer who records this moment, can you go to the next one? Says, they all, much moved, sang it, that is Psalm 124, together in four parts. (laughs) The armies knew their harmonies, y'all. So imagine this scene. You have this persecuted, imprisoned, exiled pastor returning to town, not sneaking back in before dawn with a whisper, but triumphantly returning at midday as the people of God sing out Psalm 124 in four-part harmony. It must have been a thing to behold. In fact, now this is the best part. I haven't even told you the best part yet. The jailer who was in the midst of the crowd, who was one of the chief persecutors of the time, was recorded as saying that he was more alarmed by this spectacle than anything else he had seen in all of Scotland. (laughs) Alarmed. Do you want to know why we're singing psalms? Do you want to know? Because these are our war songs. And when we sing the songs of God, The enemies of God and every demonic horde will hear and be greatly troubled. So in a moment, we're going to sing Psalm 124. 